Well, happy St. Patrick's Day. We are uh, breaking in a new mic here, so if I need to switch, just let me know, Mark. I uh, accidentally wore green, so I'm going to take that as a, as a sign that the Lord is with me. Um, just kidding. I believe the Lord is with me or I wouldn't be standing up here. Um, let's pray, and we'll get into his word. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much. Lord, for uh, the opportunity to gather in your name. Lord, we thank you that you have uh, called us to be your people. And Lord, we know that your spirit uh, uses your word to change us. And, and so, Lord, as Randy prayed, we, we pray that we would leave here changed. Lord, and that really applies to everyone. For those who don't know you, God, we pray that the gospel would just penetrate hearts. And, Father, that, uh, that people would be moved to repentance and once again, just thank you, God, for your love for us. As, as Ryan said earlier, just thank you for loving us first. Uh, we know that's the only reason why we're here. In Christ's name, amen. Well, is that going to work? There we go. That's good, I think. Thank God for warnings, right? Thank God for life lessons that we can learn simply from studying and praying through the scriptures. Just think about how many hard lessons would just be lessons if we just trusted God and heeded his warnings. I think about my own life, and, and there's so many things that, that could have gone much easier for me had I chosen God's way instead of my own. So many lessons that I had to learn the hard way. And uh, one that particularly stands out is a, is a hard lesson that was learned while I was a student at the University of Oklahoma. So I wasn't a very good student in college. Uh, I was still a new Christian my freshman year and just recently saved out of a lifestyle that we'll just say wasn't conducive to producing good study habits. And so during one memorable semester, uh, one of my electives, I chose to enroll in a class named Non-Western Communication Patterns. Now, you might be wondering why in the world I chose this class as an elective, um, and I honestly don't remember, but... Uh, I'm sure it had to do with my planning skills, which were probably about as deficient as my study skills. So day one, I show up in non-Western communication patterns, and it took about 15 minutes uh, before I started questioning that decision. One word just kept flashing in my mind. Mistake. I just remember thinking it was going to be a very, very long semester. Uh, but during the intro um, in the class, the professor made a few comments that, that gave me some hope. He said that one... Um, his lectures would come directly out of the textbook, and that two, attendance would not affect my grade. Now, this is where a different word should have been flashing in my mind, trap. Uh, but it didn't. Um, so when I heard this, my plans were immediately formed for this particular class. Follow the syllabus, which was very detailed, read the textbook, and then show up on test days. If he's good. If all his lectures are going to be based out of the textbook, I don't need to sit here and listen to this guy who was really hard to listen to. But really, I didn't really know what I was doing because little did I know that this professor um, had apparently developed a reputation for changing his syllabus. And so my next appearance in class was when the original syllabus said my first test should be given, except that much to my dismay, I found out that it was given the week before one of three tests that determine your grade. So I was a little behind. Um, and it was a long walk uphill, and I did not do too well in that class. Uh, but I learned a lesson. Simple. Kids, just go to class. 
You're paying all that money, go to class. But it would have been helpful for me to have been warned about it. Um, up to that point, every professor I sat under followed the syllabus strictly. Um, but what I learned is that they all don't follow it strictly. And if someone just would have warned me, I, I could have avoided that catastrophe, but they didn't. And honestly, I didn't seek it. I thought I, thought I knew what to do. Well, the voice of wisdom is calling us in chapter 6, and she's issuing more warnings. And she's giving us a chance to avoid learning things the hard way. You see, God doesn't delight in our suffering just for suffering's sake. Lamentations 3.33 says, For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. Now, don't get me wrong, much is said in a, in a positive light in the scriptures about suffering. And many times, our sanctification comes through our suffering. Many times we suffer in this world when we choose to love people and to walk in obedience. And that kind of suffering is pleasing to God, and it brings him glory. Acts 5.41, 2 Timothy 1.8, many, many other passages speak to this. But where God can help us avoid the kind of suffering that comes from foolish choices and careless patterns of life, he does. And this is what he's doing here. He does this a lot in Proverbs. Now, many of you have uh, ESV Bibles, and the heading for this section says what? Practical warnings. At least mine does. I hope yours does. And they are practical. Um, Here we have the Spirit of God saying, don't do these things. Avoid these behaviors. Stay away from these situations. Don't, Don't be this person. And how amazing is it that we have a God who cares so much for his children that he's willing to give us such specific guidance? We serve a really good God. So verses 1 through 5, chapter 6, says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor, or modern-day creditor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And so the first warning given here addresses money, um, specifically kind of a careless approach to money. Um, And much is said in the scripture about money. In fact, I've read where money is mentioned over 800 times in the Bible. I've not verified that for sure, but if it's anywhere close, that's a lot. Um, And that should tell us something. It's a pretty big deal. And it's, it's not the money in and of itself, but it's how money is handled. It's, it handled. it's how it's used. It's how it's viewed. And the Bible shows us that money makes a horrible God, but it also shows us that it makes a powerful tool. And God obviously doesn't need money. His economy isn't driven by the dollar. It's driven by love, which can be expressed in many ways through the dollar, which means that money can be used to glorify God, which is why we need to know how to handle it wisely. So the author gives us a little advice on money, and it's simple. He says, don't secure someone else's debt. It's pretty straightforward. You fast forward to our, our world today, and, and to, the, to us, this would mean that you shouldn't co-sign on a loan or financially back someone else's debt. And what's implied is that you shouldn't do this when you can't afford to repay it if that person defaults. So we read this, and, and it's easy to, to kind of question, is, is the author coming down on giving and that's, that's not at all what he's doing. Um, he's, he's by no means discouraging the act of giving or being generous. Giving is a really good thing. It's, it's even a spiritual gift. But giving from what you have is not the same as committing to give from what you don't have. That's normally a bad risk. And that's what the author is addressing here. 
But looking at the times in which we live, thanks to credit cards and, and the modern lending system, many of us today just can't relate to this. Many of us have never co-signed for anyone. But I think there's an overarching principle here that we, can, we, we all can relate to very well. Notice that the author says, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. In other words, modern day, if you have in some way overcommitted yourself financially. If you've overcommitted yourself. Has anyone in this room ever walked into a financial trap or made a really bad financial decision? Yeah, a lot of us have. Anyone ever gone into debt for something and gotten in way over your head? It's pretty common. Stats would say that a decent number in this room have, and some are here currently. And if you're, if you're this person, then here's what the author says to do. He says, save yourself. He goes on to say, go, hasten, plead urgently, sacrifice sleep. Again, he says, save yourself. Guys, this is urgent language. I mean, this sounds like, like a hostage situation, not a bad money deal. Right? Why the urgency? Well, if we look closely, we notice the concern from the author isn't necessarily the financial quandary, but rather its effects. You see, the author's concern is for your life. He's concerned about the destruction of your life. This is why how you handle money is a big deal. How many people have come to ruin by making foolish decisions regarding money? So many. It won't take you long to find someone if you start looking, and you might be that person, but there's hope. There's hope. Because in this day and age, well, not because, but in this day and age, um, with the access we have to credit and the instant gratification mentality we're conditioned to adopt, it's so easy for people to find themselves trapped in these kinds of situations. We buy houses we can't afford. We drive cars we can't afford. We take vacations we can't afford. We find ourselves living paycheck to paycheck when we don't have to. Did you know that four out of five Americans live this way? So I know that's several in here. Hear me out. I'm not, I'm not coming down on that by itself. I understand that some folks are forced to do that. I mean, in this economy, it's hard at times, and, and it's all you can do to pay the bills. I get it. But if we're honest, and, and when we really kind of face the truth, some of us at least, we live this way out of choice. We don't really have to. For some, it's a mindset. It's a lifestyle that the author here is warning us against. And when you live this way in, in constant financial strain, it just takes one thing you didn't see coming. That unforeseen medical bill, that unexpected, unexpected termination or, or layoff, that critical home repair that insurance doesn't cover. Just one thing goes wrong that you don't have the money to cover and everything kind of falls apart. And then you become that person that can cause the situation that's being described here. Did you get, follow me? And in today's world where we live, it's, it's usually not that one big financial mistake that gets you. It's all the little ones that pile up. It's an overarching, careless attitude towards money that leads to many smaller decisions that build up to financial ruin. It's death by a thousand cuts. And every unwise financial decision, however small, can be much like removing a block from a Jenga puzzle. You guys know what Jenga is? So in Jenga, you start out with this, this is a very simple game. You just start out with this, this tightly stacked tower of wooden blocks. And, and each player 
then proceeds to take turns removing the blocks and, and repositioning those blocks normally on top of the tower. Sometimes people are good enough to kind of make little side things and it gets really ugly. But you keep taking turns until one of the players attempts to, to reposition a block that causes the whole tower to fall. And you see, every time a block is removed and, and repositioned, the tower is weakened. Sure, it gets taller, but with every block removed, it gets weaker and weaker and more and more messy, much like a life of making poor financial decisions. In this country, you can get away with that for a while. You can gain more things and do more things, and hourly your tower is getting taller. But eventually, something's going to give. That last block will be pulled, and, and then it all tumbles down. That's what the, that's what the author is warning against here. And, and, and he's saying, you'll be left with the carnage. You'll be left with a pile of pieces that can be very, very difficult to put back together over the course of a single lifetime. And so the warning is this. Don't take bad financial risk. And if you find yourself in this predicament, or if you see that you've made decisions that have put you at risk of this happening, the author says here to, to urgently and relentlessly do everything you can to undo it. Did you know that trappers, animal trappers, still exist? My kids and I used to watch a series called Mountain Men. Just really, really got into that for some reason. And some of these guys were trappers. And these guys, obviously, they're guys that live in the mountains, and they make their living in the mountains, and they hunt and trap and all this stuff. And the guys who trap uh, would tell you of a, of a phenomenon called ring-off. This is where a trapped animal will literally gnaw off a limb in order to escape a trap. These animals understand that if they don't act with urgency, if they don't do whatever it takes to get free, it's going to cost them their lives. And in verse 5, the author uses the urgency of a trapped animal as an example to follow if you find yourself in this situation. That's urgent. Brothers and sisters, let's be honest. Poor, poor financial behavior is not uncommon in the church. If it was, Dave Ramsey wouldn't be a household name. Right? I've sat through one of his deals. It was tremendously helpful. Did the, the one-day blast through it all, and it was, it was great. I needed to hear it at that time in my life. We've all made poor financial decisions, and we all probably will, and we'll suffer the consequences. But if we find ourselves in a situation like this where we have, like, we have grossly overcommitted, we're told to work like our lives dependent on it, because in some ways, they do. And it might be painful. We might even suffer substantial loss in the process. But what we stand to gain is worth it. We have to trust God here. He says this is the best way. Losing a limb is painful. Losing that equity in a home or losing the security and pride of that brand new car or truck that you couldn't afford. Paying that cancellation fee on that vacation you can't afford. Losing these kinds of things can be painful and costly and, and they can be humbling, honestly. But if the alternative has the potential to dramatically alter your life, a life that's supposed to be lived for the glory of God, then swallow hard and ask God for help to endure the pain and do whatever's necessary to turn the ship. That's what he's saying here. It's the wise thing to do, and it will more often than not keep you from a life of unnecessary suffering and strife. While at the same time, allowing you the, fr the freedom to glorify God in ways you just couldn't if you're trapped in a bad financial situation. So much more can be said here. Um, when, it, when you're talking about money, there's just so much you can say. Um, but we need to move on. 
I think you, you get the gist of it. The next warning the author issues is against laziness. And so we see a, a jump from a careless attitude towards money to a careless attitude towards work. He says in verse 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So, for those of us who are inclined to be lazy, here is the author's advice. It's a three-step process. Go, learn, and work. Or you can suffer. Pretty straightforward. He says, hey, sluggard, go. Get up and go. But how you go matters, and how you do something matters. You see, hard work isn't, it's a learned behavior. It's not something that just comes to us. Because our flesh really doesn't want to work hard most of the time. Apart from special motivation, I say that day in and day out, we'd rather not work hard. It's hard. And God knows this, right? He knows that we need specific guidance here. And his spirit is moving the author to provide it. And what does he tell us to do? He tells us to observe and learn from a little tiny insect we call the ant. Isn't the efficiency of God amazing? Not only is he showing us a great example of how to work hard, he's also teaching us the humility that comes with learning from a tiny little bug. So what does the ant do? She works hard and she works with purpose. She doesn't just work aimlessly. She works with a goal in mind. You know, something I observed is that the author doesn't say that the ant works because she enjoys it. He doesn't say that the ant works because it gives her great fulfillment or because it perfectly aligns with her dreams, interests, and passions. Actually, we're, giving, we're given one reason why the ant gathers and prepares. So she can eat. We all like to eat, right? Because what happens if you don't eat? I mean, it's pretty simple. That's really the ant's base motivation here, living, which involves eating, and therefore will normally involve working. And you know, when you talk about working in a way that pleases God, you can talk about a lot of things, again, but while thinking through this and, and how this might confront us specifically in today's world, it came to mind that we live in a day and age where the primary message isn't always work so you can eat. I mean, it's just not what you hear a lot. In fact, oftentimes the message regarding work is do what makes you happy. Yes, work is good and necessary, but make sure you land a career that's enjoyable and make sure you do something that you're passionate about. But you know what, guys? That attitude towards work is kind of selfish. It's kind of me-centered. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm all for pursuing your interests and your desires when it comes to your career. Like, pursue those. Especially, a lot of times, your, your passions are, are rooted in your giftedness, and so it's not bad to seek employment or to seek a career in something that you're passionate about. But we must remember that while our passions and dreams might be where we start looking in terms of employment, it's not where we stop looking. If a career in your passions and dreams isn't providing the necessities of life, then you need to reevaluate. The best advice I ever received when I was trying to decide on a major at OU was from my dad. And those of you who, who know me have probably heard me say this, but he said, you know, I was asking, Dad, what, what do I major in? There's so many options. And he, he didn't tell me what to major in. He just told me what not to major in. He said, don't major in unemployment. 
I'm like, okay. And I, and I, I mean, that, that was the, literally the best advice I ever received. I just thought, man, that's a good point. And so I started asking around about what major would land me a job when I graduate because I'm going to be in debt. We didn't have the money. My parents helped me, but they didn't pay for all my college. I paid for some of my college. So I wanted to get a job when I graduated. Young people especially, if, if you sit around waiting for that perfect job to come along, that let's face it, may or may not ever come along, you can quickly find yourself on the wrong side of this passage. And verses 10 and 11 warn us that, that this doesn't end well. And here's the bottom line. God created us to work. Before he ever fell in sin, Adam had work to do. Genesis 2.15, he was to tend the garden. That was work. It was good work, but it was work. And guess what? After the fall, Adam had work to do. Genesis 3, 17 through 19, and I think this is the NLT. It says, And to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat, until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Sure seems like the job description changed a little bit after the fall. Goodbye to tending the garden and hello to thorns, thistles, and sweat. But that doesn't change the fact that Adam was still designed to work. And we live in a post-fall world, so for many of us, there are things about our jobs that just aren't enjoyable, right? There are thorns and thistles, and they can cause frustration, and they're hard. But did you know that we can find joy even in those things? Because as believers, we are to work as though we are working for Christ. And Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see, the joy that is found in working has, has very little to do with what you are actually doing and so much to do with who you are serving. If your attitude in your work is that Jesus is your boss, then you're walking in obedience. And if you're walking in obedience, you will have joy no matter what you're doing because you are in direct service to the King of Kings. How can you not experience joy when that is your state of mind? Now, I don't have the time to connect the dots between joy and obedience, uh, but it's really not hard. And I encourage you guys to look into that on your own. A great resource is Jerry Bridges' book. It's called The Joy of Fearing God. It is worth your time. But looking back at our passage, we see that God is, is graciously showing us what it looks like to work in a way that pleases him. He's giving us a, a very simple example to follow. The author tells us if we want to learn how to work God's way, to work wisely and avoid becoming a sluggard, the guy that we're being warned about, we would do well to study the ant. So what about the ant? Just a few quick observations. One, ants are self-controlled. And there could be many here, so I just chose three. Self-control. In describing the ant, the author tells us she has no chief, officer, or ruler. Now, you might be wondering, do ants not have a queen? Well, yes, they normally do. Sometimes they don't, though, I learned. Sometimes the worker ants actually lay the eggs. Interesting. But they normally have a queen, but she's called a queen 
she doesn't really function as a queen. All she, all she does is lay eggs. There's no centralized command in an ant colony. You see, it, it's been proven that, that ants operate on their own without any centralized control. It's pretty amazing. They, they simply know what needs to be done, and they control themselves in a manner to do what they need to do. They, they need to eat, and, and the means by which they were designed to acquire food was through work. And so they work. They go find food. They, they do it without concern about who may or may not be watching. They just know what needs to be done. Two answer diligent. They go to very extreme measures to secure what they need, and they don't quit easily. You just watch a, a colony of ants sometime, and, and if they find an insect or a, a berry or whatever food item they stumble upon, and it's too big for one ant to carry, it's like they just immediately put their noses down or their, their pincers down and start cutting it up. <laughs> they, that's what they do, manageable chunks. They're not easily dissuaded, and they're known to, to roam great distances, up to 100 yards, which is equivalent to over 30 miles for a human. I mean, they'll go a long way to find food. They don't expect it to just fall out of the sky onto the anthill. They go after it. Complacency is not an option for the ant. And can I make a suggestion? If you're in need of a job right now, can I suggest that you make it your full-time job to find a job? That's your job. If you don't have a job, work 40 hours a week to find one. And you'll find one. Be diligent like the ant, and you will have bread. Ants are efficient. Number three, you know, we have a, a, a big red anthill in our house, or at our house, not in our house, in our yard. Fortunately, it's not in our house. And I've spent some time uh, observing these little creatures. I'm kind of curious, so sometimes if I'm out there, I'll just kind of like watch them because they're just fascinating. And they like mulberries. Ants like mulberries. And we have a mulberry tree, and guess, guess where they've made their hill? It's right, by, right next to the mulberry tree. And you can see the paths that they've literally worn out making trips to and from this tree. They're just straight lines to the source. They identify a food source, and they go after it efficiently. No wasted time trying to determine if they prefer mulberries to grasshoppers. Not very picky. They're just driven, and they just go get it efficiently. And there's different kinds of ants, workers, nursery attendants, soldiers, farmers, ranchers, harvesters, and I think there are more than that. And they all know their roles, and they all know their strengths, and they're content with operating within the parameters of those roles and strengths. They're efficient. They know what they were designed to do, and they do it. They just get themselves up and do it. And they know specifically what they were designed to do, and they work together, and they get it done. And there's, once again, there's a lot more we could learn, but it would probably take half a day to, to go through all the observations that we could make. But you get the point. Ants know they need to eat in order to live. And they know, what, and they know that it takes work to gather food. And so with diligence and efficiency, they get up and they do what needs to be done without anyone standing over them. The author here says, if you're a sluggard, if you're lazy, there are two paths you can choose. Poverty or change. And change looks like the ant. And so at this point in this passage, we, we've seen warnings against being careless with your money. We've seen warnings against laziness or being careless in your approach to work. And now we have another warning. But here it just seems like the author kind of ratchets it up a notch. Um, this next section of warning carries with it a, a little different tone. 
quite a different tone, actually, than the first two. Verses 12 through 15 say, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. Now I want you to see something here. If, if we look back at the first warning in verse 1, we see that the author addresses his reader as a son. There, there's more of an intimate feel here, a father-son relationship. And it seems like the author is somewhat sympathetic to this person. And I don't claim to know the exact reason why, but, but let's face it, it's not too hard to get tangled up in bad financial situations. And many people find themselves there on the heels of good intentions. I mean, maybe even trying to love someone, but they just they don't do it in wisdom. And so now you've got two people that are trapped. And so he's, he's, it's almost like a, a, a sympathy, a, a loving, personal father-son tone. And then we have the sluggard. And the author doesn't seem to be quite so sympathetic here, but there's still a personal tone to it. He's still speaking to the reader. But as Ray Ortland points out, when the author gets to the worthless person, here there's a shift. He moves from speaking to the person to speaking about the person. There's a chilling tone here. Imagine an adult confronting three troublemaking kids and saying, you and you need to come with me, but that one needs to go home. How would you feel if you were that one? You and you come with me. That one go home. That's, that's the tone we see here. It's cold. And it's that way because we're getting into very serious stuff here. It's very dangerous territory. We're getting into things that verse 16 says the Lord hates. Things that are an abomination to him. And when you find yourself living a lifestyle that is characterized by things the scripture says the Lord hates... You're not in a safe place. And so the author in verse 12 describes this next example as, as a worthless person and a wicked man. The NIV describes him as a scoundrel and a villain. The author says that he goes about with crooked speech. In other words, he's a liar. The author then says in verse 13 that he winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, and points with his finger. NLT says he signals his deceit. He doesn't just lie with his mouth. He engages his whole body. He incorporates animation. He's an actor. We're dealing with a skillful, practicing liar. And in verse 14, the author points to the source, and he says it's the heart. It's no surprise here. A devising, perverted heart. This is a heart that plans deceit. It's premeditated. And what does a heart in this condition produce? The same verse tells us. Continual discord. Continual discord. Think of strife, conflict, hostility, friction, division. This is what, the kind of, this is what that kind of heart produces. And guys, there's so much written, especially in the New Testament, about unity. It's a huge deal. And why is that? There are many reasons, but I think the main one, at least when it comes to the church, is found in John 17, 20 through 21. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, when he's praying for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, 
just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice that Jesus prays for unity among his disciples so the world will believe the Father sent him. And there's a lot that's attached to that. But this is why when a person is persistent in stirring up division in the church among the disciples, we're told to have nothing to do with them. Titus 3, 10 and 11 says, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You see, if, if one of the greatest strengths in our witness is our unity, which that's the first step really in making disciples, right? Evangelizing. So our, our witness is, is how? It's a very major part of our evangelization of the lost. If one of our greatest strengths is our witness and our unity, then one of our greatest threats is division or discord and those who seek to sow it. You see, this passage in Titus and others like it that deal with church discipline can seem harsh and punitive, but the purpose of church discipline is restoration to the body if the person is truly a believer. And if he's not, its purpose is restoration to God through the gospel because that person needs to see that he doesn't understand the gospel if that's what he does. And the removal of a divisive person from the body is really more of a protective measure for the body, not a punitive measure for the guilty party. We want that person to come to a saving knowledge of God, but sacrificing the bride of Christ is not God's plan to accomplish that. That guy's got to go. We can't allow that behavior in the church. It's dangerous to everyone. Everyone. But a person who sows discord is, is harmful, really, in any organization. It's not just the church. It's interesting. I was listening to a, a famous businessman speak about his company one time, and he said the single most despised thing, in his opinion, was gossip. Not being chronically late to work, not even poor for performance or production at work, but gossip. You know why I said that he hated gossip so much? Because it destroys unity in the workplace. And when unity is destroyed, production drastically decreases. When there's infighting in any organization, it can bring things to a screeching halt. And everyone who works for this guy gets the warning when they get hired. If it can be proven that you are gossiping, you get fired on the spot. It's a one-strike policy, and he's a wise man. And it's not just gossip that can cause disunity, right? Sometimes it's the color of the paint or the carpet. Stuff that's going to burn one day anyway. We can get all irritated with each other about. We call that pride. Sometimes it's, it's concerns. Concerns that are shared with everyone except the person who's causing the concern. Church, there's a reason why if you have an issue with your brother or sister in Christ, the Bible tells you to go to that brother or sister in love and work it out. Amen. Don't go to everyone else about that brother and sister. Amen. You won't be working it out. You'll be causing division. And we could spend 
Once again, more time here. But God is sovereign, and just like Ryan said this morning, he thought it was good to list this stuff together, and so here we go. We're flying through it. But I encourage you guys to look into each one of these points on your own. They're all really, really important. Um, obviously, they, they made the scripture, so they're important. But moving further on into the passage, you can, you can almost feel a, a righteous anger here. Um, the author's prompted to list other things the Lord hates. Now, I don't claim to know the exact reason why he goes into this list, but I do know it's a grace. I mean, the consequences of the first two examples are bad enough, right? Despair, poverty, want. But the consequences for a divisive man, this is as bad as it gets. This guy doesn't stand a chance when the hammer drops. Brokenness beyond healing is what we're told awaits him. That's God who can heal anything. He said that. Brokenness beyond healing. That is heavy. And if there are other things that lead to this end, is it not a grace that we're being, being told what they are? And that's what happens here. Picking up in verse 16, he says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. And here it is again, one who sows discord among brothers. And so what the author does here in verses 16 through 19 is he uses a literary device we call a parallelism. You think of, think of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, that repetitive I have a dream, the rhythm I have a dream. It helps you remember what he said. And one scholar said this, he said, this form, parallelism, allows the poet to present a list under a single rubric or heading. So he's presenting a list under a heading. And it causes the reader to consider each element as related to the others. Sometimes, but not always, the emphasis is on the final element. And I do think here that the emphasis is on the final element, the sowing of discord. It can, it can lead to all these things, actually. And I don't have time today um, to dive into to how each of these evils mentioned on the list relates to each other, but it doesn't require too much thought to see how they all touch. And we see other passages in the Bible where they're mentioned together. Verse 17 of our text, we see haughty eyes, arrogant eyes. We find this in Proverbs 8.13. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. You see arrogance and perverted speech coupled together here. Perverted hearts produce perverted words because we know that from the heart, what? The mouth speaks. Verse 17 also mentions hands that shed innocent blood. Verse 19 mentions a false witness that breathes out lies. We see these mentioned together in Isaiah 59.3. says, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. <clears throat> your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. You see that false witness and innocent blood. Psalm 27.12, give me not up to the will of my, <clears throat> of my adversaries. <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a cough. For false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. We're told here that a false witness breathes out violence. He breathes out more than just lies. If his deceit results in the death or the harm of an innocent person, he's breathing out violence. That's what he's talking about. Those lies, those don't just land out in an open field somewhere. They affect people. Every lie that's ever told has an effect on someone else. Don't kid yourself. It has an effect on God for sure. 
He doesn't like it. And what makes the end of the list here? One who sows discord among brothers. Guys, this is so important. When we come to a section of Scripture that speaks of things the Lord hates, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the Lord of hosts, which means the Lord of heaven's armies, heaven's armies, for you military guys, can you imagine what that looks like? When we come across a section of Scripture that says he hates these things, we would do very, very well to pay attention and to avoid those things. Because people who are actively engaged in the things on this list, if they don't repent, they will face the end described in verse 15, brokenness beyond healing. And that's tough language. And we need to understand that that people who live their lives this way, people who fit this description, these are people who, who who one guy said, they play pinball with the king's pearls. They spit on what the king has said he loves and values the most out of all his creation. I don't do this enough to not do this every time I preach, so it's one thing to be careless. It's one thing to be careless with money. It's it's one thing to be careless with work. It's sin. It's not good. But it's an entirely different ballgame to be careless with human life. And this person who does this, his love of self has reached full-on perversion. And he's bent on the destruction of others. These people lie and deceive with a purpose. They take pleasure in the destruction of the very thing God, God died to save. Does this remind you of someone? I'll give you a hint. John 8, 43 and 44 says, Jesus in speaking to the Pharisees, Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here we have the ultimate perverted heart that breathes out lies. And notice that murder and lying, again, are coupled together. And there will come a time when even he will be broken beyond healing. And in spite of what some voices out there are currently espousing, voices that some of us may currently even be hearing, he is currently still breathing out lies, people. And he will continue to until he is broken beyond healing, and he will be. And his ultimate destiny is a place called hell. And it's a place where no hope of healing can be found. You go there, you are beyond healing. And people who identify with him and follow after him, the scripture says, will join him there. Don't be the person who sows discord. This is dangerous, dangerous territory. And if you find yourself here or anywhere close, there's only one response that's fitting. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. In fact, if I was asked to give one word to describe what a response to the entire book of Proverbs should be, it would be repent. And some of you might say, well, that's a negative way to look at it. Follow or or obey might be the better word in light of all the instruction we receive from this book. And there's an argument to be made for that. But we can't get the cart before the horse. There's something that has to happen before the following can happen, before obedience is possible. 
because we were born with a heart that wants to rebel and run and hide, not a heart that wants to follow. And we were born facing the wrong direction, and it's not until we turn and face the right one that we can follow. Isaiah 53, 6, famous passage, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Psalm 53, 2 through 3, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have all become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so we see these warnings and we, and we desperately need to heed them. And we want to avoid the consequences of being careless with our money and, and with our work. And we especially want to avoid being careless towards people who God died and shed his own blood for. But you know what? Our hearts are full of carelessness towards what God says is good and valuable, all of us. And don't kid yourself, all sin is deadly. Not just seven. Now, many can be related to those. All sin is deadly. Some sins are a product of hearts that are especially hardened and perverted, like what we just talked about. And the scripture here says those people are in special danger. But apart from God's saving grace, we are all headed for brokenness beyond repair. Because the wages for any sin is death. But God has offered us hope. God has made a way for us to live the way he intended. He's made a way for us to handle our money wisely. He's, he's made a way for us to, to, to learn what it is to work his way. He's made a way for us to, to know how to love each other and, and cultivate peace and unity instead of hatred and division and deception. In fact, he's made a way for us to glorify him in all that we do. And the way that he's provided for this to happen is Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us all about it. It shows us our brokenness. It shows us our need for help, for intervention. It shows us that we can't put ourselves back together. It shows us that God saw our brokenness. He saw our need and he provided. It tells us that he sent his son into this world 2,000 years ago because he loved us. And because he loved us, he lived a sinless life we're supposed to live. And then he voluntarily died the death that we were supposed to die as our substitute. He became the spotless lamb we could never become or produce ourselves. And his perfect blood atoned for our sin, made it right. And then after three days, he overcame death. And he erupted from the grave in victory. And now he reigns with the Father in heaven as all things have been placed under his authority. You see, Jesus took the penalty of sin, the brokenness beyond all hope of healing that we just heard about, really that we all deserve. He drank the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. And now for those of us who believe this gospel, now we have the power to actually live lives that are pleasing to God. Now we can heed the warnings because we're facing the right direction and we're not just restraining the flesh. We're pursuing God. And that pursuit creates a, a Godward momentum in our lives that fuels the desire to obey as we taste and see that the Lord is good. But sin still remains in the flesh. And so we still have to make the decision every day to take up our crosses and walk in God's ways. We still have to choose to put off the old man and put on the new man. We still have to walk in wisdom and how we handle money and how we work and, and how we handle people. We still have to choose to obey the Lord's commands and heed his warnings. 
And one of those commands is to take a sacred meal, a meal that reminds us of what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. On the cross, he gave his body to be broken, so we take the bread as we think on that body that was broken. And he poured out his blood, so we take the wine as we think on his precious blood that was shed. And we're reminded as we do this that one day we will dine with him when our hope for an eternal sin-free existence with our Lord becomes a blissful reality. So if you've believed the gospel I just spoke of, please join us. You're part of the family. If you haven't, please refrain. Instead, believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and join the family. Let's pray and take this meal. Father in heaven, we are humbled by the thought that you would take such good care of us, Lord, in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our failure with all things mentioned today and so much more, God, you've still been pleased to love us, and it is grace. And so as we take this meal, Lord, help us reflect on that grace. Help us see that there was absolutely nothing we could do. Lord, we were helpless, we were hopeless. And if, if it weren't for the cross, Lord, we would still be there. But you came and you died and you rose. And then you told us to take this meal to remember what you did. And to remember what it's going to be like one day when we take a meal with you. And we enter into an eternal blessing that our minds can't even comprehend. Lord, I just pray for the lost in this place today. I pray that necks would not be stiffened. There's some hard things that were shared today, Lord. Hard things for me, for all of us. Lord, we need to hear those hard things. We need to be confronted with our sins so that we know there's a need for forgiveness. So if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray that, that their sin would be confronted deeply, Lord. I pray that the gospel would be evident, that it would be understood, that it would be believed. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged to walk in wisdom. It matters. It matters how we handle money. It matters how we work. And it really matters how we love people or how we don't. Lord, you're good. And we just thank you for your goodness. In Christ's name, amen.
Let's all stand and sing together as we close out today. Let's just sing the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures Go be salt and light.